Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. How's everybody doing today? Good? All right, amen. So uh, I want to jump right back into our series, but uh, I wanted to touch on why I, why I recap the series that we're in, not just for like visitors that, that haven't been here for the series, but because Mary used to tell me that during our Wednesday night Bible studies back in the day, she would say, why every, every time we come, you spend 10 minutes talking about what we've already talked about? And uh, so I thought about that because um, we've been going through this series and I'm looking at you guys and many of you are like, yeah, we know which ones we already went through. Stop telling us. But the scripture says in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. How many of us have come to realize that we need to be reminded of things? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Right. We've heard it before, but we need to hear it again. And we need to be reminded of, of what we've already uh, learned. Uh, being back in school and being in seminary right now, um, I see the value of going over things and going over notes and remembering if you're going to build on something, remembering what you've already learned and how you've already grown uh, so that God can establish it and make it easier to learn what you have for the future. So if you ever wonder why I always do that, you don't need to wonder anymore. So, our series, The Archetype, um, Webster's definition, again, everybody say again. again, says the original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies of, right? So the archetype, the first one, the original, the OG, uh, the one that we're going to make all the copies from, right? Jesus is the archetype. We are a copy of him. We are being shaped, formed, transformed, uh, molded like clay into the image of Christ because he's the archetype. Uh, it's most commonly used to mean the perfect example of something, and we definitely see that in Jesus. He's perfect, without spot, without blemish, without sin, the perfect archetype, right? So, this comes from the 1800s, a gentleman um, uh, named Carl Jung, and I was looking up more about him this last weekend, and it, and it turns out that he has like a Christian background. His, his father was a pastor. He had uncles that were elders and leaders in church, and uh, a lot of times his, his philosophy gets mixed up in the things of the world, but I, I think I can see a little bit more clearly why he... Um, uh, came up with some of the things that he came up with, right? So we've been looking at this, and every time we've covered one, we've said that, that Jesus is the archetype of that. The ones we have not covered yet are the sage or the wise man, the innocent, the ruler, and the hero. And the ones that we have covered in week one, we did the caregiver, right? Uh, uh, Gary, you said it this morning. Thank you for not changing. Mary said it during worship that he never steps out of love. He loves us. He cares for us. He considers us. When nobody else is there, he's there. Somebody say amen. amen. He provides care. He says, I came for the sick. I came for the hurting. If you're not sick, if you're not broken, if you don't have sin, there's nothing I could do for you. Right? If you do need care, though, here I am, he says, right? And he allows himself to be cared for. This is an area I think many of us have been practicing and trying and, and preparing uh, ourselves to, to get better at is allowing people to care for you. Some people don't want to ask for help. You need to ask for help. Some people don't want people to show up alongside of them and put their arm around them or, or if they're struggling to strengthen them, uh, they'd rather go through things alone. And Jesus still, uh, didn't teach us that. Right? He said, look, I'm hurting. I need three guys to come with me right now. We're going to go pray. And then when they went with him, they fell asleep. He said, one more chance. Everybody get up and come pray with me. He's like, I need care. I need help too, right? So we need to practice that. Then we looked at the rebel in week two. He rebelled against certain things, certain people, certain processes, procedures, uh, uh, church traditions. He was not afraid to, a rebe to rebel against those things. But the lesson, I think one of the lessons we learned was uh, to rebel in a way that still honors God, right? 
to rebel in a way that still honors God, and we got to work through that and pray through that. Then he's the creator. Everything we see, everything we have, he created. He created it for us. That spirit of creativity that's in each and every one of us comes from him. He's the archetype of that. The magician in, in uh, week four, I thought I would get more flack for this one and people saying he's not doing magic, but I think we did a good job of saying he's not doing magic. It's not smoke and mirrors. He's doing miracles. I don't know about the rest of you, but I believe in miracles. If you need a book on miracles, C.S. Lewis, the book is called Miracles. It's a great one. And he talks about what it means for, for God to create everything. And to, what we know as nature is what he established as nature for us, right? How time works and how all these other things work, um, how weather works, right? But he can suspend those things because he made those things. He's a miracle worker, right? He's not a magician. Um, he's a miracle worker. Then the orphan, what it means for many of us to be orphans, to know orphans, to be fatherless, to be motherless. And we, I think we can learn, as you read through the scriptures, why God cares so much for the widows and why God cares so much for the orphans, right? Um, I think we can look into that. We saw the explorer. He goes everywhere. He reaches everybody. He went as far as he, he deemed necessary at the time, and now he spread his word and his love throughout all the world, um, the archetype of the explorer. And then last week after Valentine's Day, we, uh, we did the lover, right? How he loves, what it means to be um, loved by God, what it means to, to love others, and hopefully that was a blessing to you guys. Uh, I know it was for me. Mary was awesome this week. She loved me. She just, you know. Aww. <clears throat> I'll preach on love every week if she's going to just be that nice to me. <laughs> this week we're doing love part two. For <laughs> no, I just felt a little bit of extra love, not only for Mary, but I think all around, all of us were trying to be a little bit more loving. Um, amen. Right. So, so this week, I am excited, as always, to, to get into this week's uh, topic for the series. And we're going to be looking at Jesus as the archetype of the jester or the joker. Amen. We got a video for you guys. All right. Amen. <laughs> so we know we have a sense of humor. Somebody say amen. amen. I got a, another picture for you guys real quick. This one uh, is Jesus meeting with a young man. It says, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. <laughs> So the jester, the joker, uh, where all this comes from, we'll see. We'll see how we do if we can tie this in with Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Everybody say laugh. Laugh. Job chapter 8 verse 21 says, he will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Right? So these things come from our God. Say amen. amen. Say amen. 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 So we should laugh. We should enjoy ourselves. Christians should not be the depressed people on the planet. Amen. I'm not talking about just regular uh, uh, clinical depression. Everybody goes through some of those things and God can heal. I'm talking about why we look like the sad people. Why do we look like it, it's reverent to God to never smile, never be happy? That's not true. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be joyful, and he gives us plenty of reasons for that. So this jester, this, this joker, and, and how we're going to look at, at uh, Jesus in this light today, look at the Lord in this light today. In Genesis chapter 18, uh, the Lord shows up to, to Abraham and Sarah, and he tells them, you're going to be pregnant. They're like 100 years old. The Bible says that, that Sarah begins to laugh. And then the Lord says, what are you laughing at? <laughs> what, am I a clown? You think it's funny, the miracle of childbirth for old people? And he checks her for laughing. I think it's funny when Jesus does that. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus puts his finger in a deaf man's ears. And then he puts his, his, his uh, finger uh, on his tongue and touches his mouth, and all of a sudden the guy can hear and he can talk. He had a, a speech impediment. I always think it's funny when Jesus does stuff like this. Like, there's so many ways that you can heal people. You know, people will come to him and say, hey, so heal my servant, and then Jesus speaks a word and he's healed. So why, why is it that he says, today I'm going to stick my finger in his ears, right, and put my finger on his tongue to heal him? Or he spits on the ground and he makes clay and he throws it in somebody's eye. What's the song? I think it's Sinatra says, here's mud in your eye. Is it? I think he got that from Jesus, too. In Mark chapter 8, uh, 
he spits on another blind man's eyes, right? The guy comes up to him, they bring him and say, hey, he's blind, can, can you heal him? He's asking Jesus to heal him. He spits on his eyes and then touches his eyes and says, can you see? Uh, and then uh, the, the blind man can't see good. He says, I see people, but they kind of look like trees. And then Jesus touches his eyes again and then tells him, look up into the skies, then he can see perfectly. I think that's hilarious because we know that Jesus could have healed him the first time, right? Why did he do that? People watching, listening to him, watching him talk to God. I think he does a lot of funny things. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, the Lord sees Moses, and Moses is out tending the sheep. And uh, all of a sudden, he lights a bush on fire, and the, the burning bush is, is blazing, and Moses sees it. And Moses comes running over to look at it, and God says, Don't look. Don't look over here at this. And matter of fact, take your shoes off of your feet. This is holy ground. I think that's hilarious too. Why? Why does he say that to him? In Joshua chapter 5, um, Joshua just finished circumcising all of the children of Israel that are still alive because Moses has died now. And um, it says it takes him a while to heal, right? And when he's healed, he's standing there and he's praying and then the Lord shows up with a sword in his hand and he looks at Joshua and can't you see Joshua like, really? Like, we just did this whole circumcision thing and now here's Jesus standing before me with the sword. And then Jesus says, don't worry. What we're going to do is we're going to take over the land of Jericho. You're going to go in uh, and have victory. And what does he say to him? Anybody remember? He says, oh, but by the way, where you're standing is, is holy ground. Take your shoes off. I could, see, I could see the Lord, before he said it, saying, hey, to his father and to the Holy Spirit, watch this, watch this. I'm going to do the same thing to Joshua that I did to Moses. Watch this. <laughs> Take your shoes off your feet. And then Moses is in heaven like, see, he got me with that same one. <laughs> Many of us know kind of how the Lord speaks to you. I don't know. I was going over my message yesterday, and, and Mary was asking me, why are you laughing? I'm like, man, because God is so funny. He's so funny in the way that he deals with me and the way that he deals with other people. Uh, I just think it's hilarious what he says in his scripture a lot of times. Um, some of you know that we just had a major water leak at our house, um, a slab leak. So water's coming up through the floor and then it rained and we realized we don't have a slab leak. We've got it literally coming in from the ceiling too. So we've been going through all these things and, and uh, so they've got to replace our floor. We're not going to do carpet. We're going to put the, uh, the vinyl flooring down, whatever it is now. And... Um, We've been, for years, going to people's houses, and we find it weird sometimes. They're like, hey, you know, do you mind taking your shoes off like when you come in the house? I, I, I think it's, I thought it's a little bit weird, but it's a cultural thing. And then I was laughing because I'm like, now we're going to be those people. When you, when you guys come to our house, we're going to be like, hey, uh, <laughs> you saw the basket of zapatos over there, didn't you? Like, just <laughs> go ahead and kick them off. You can see Jesus kind of being that way every time with the, with the disciples, right? Like, he'd say, go out and do something, and then they'd come back, and then they'd, they'd come back into the house, or they'd come back into the upper room, and then I could see Jesus looking at, at his disciples the same way, like, hey, man, you know, it's holy ground, just kick your shoes off. But then what happens? During the Last Supper, after he's done this to Moses at the burning bush, he's done it to uh, Joshua before they took Jericho, he's done it to his disciples multiple times, then he says, uh, but guys, I'm going to wash your feet now, right? Kick off your shoes. I got something to teach you. So while I think God is hilarious, I also think he has a purpose in all these things that he's doing. He's not just doing them to be funny, even though it is funny. Uh, he has something that he wants to teach, something that he wants to show us. So as we look at Jesus as the archetype of the gesture today, I think we're going to see uh, where some of our sense of humor comes from, but also we won't make light uh, of the things that God is actually doing in the stories that we look at, right? Like there's a lesson to learn. There's something he wants to teach us. From Abraham and Sarah, we know we get Isaac and Jacob, and eventually we get the children of Israel, right? From Joshua at Jericho, um, and after that story, what we end up seeing is Rahab is saved. Her family is saved, and she becomes part of the bloodline of Jesus, right? From the disciples and their dirty feet, eventually... He washes them, he sanctifies them, and then he says, go turn the world upside down. And he says that now they have beautiful feet because they bring the good news of the gospel, right? So he's always up to something. I do believe he wants us to laugh. I do believe he wants us to be joyful. This is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. 
It says that then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you have heard that before? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Raise your hand if you heard that before. Amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, Mary and I had a, had a, a weekend away. We went up to Bethel and... Uh, Redding, Northern California. We uh, spent the weekend there, went to services, went to prayer services, and just uh, enjoyed those folks up there and then saw some of the things they did. We went to a, to a prayer service, and they had like a course kind of thing going on, similar to, to what we do for prayer, uh, but it was just a, a one-day Saturday thing, and they used this scripture that the joy of the Lord is, is our strength, and what they were actually teaching these people to do, which uh, I'll be honest with you, I thought it was really weird and really awkward, is they were teaching people how to laugh. <laughs> Like they were just laughing and talking and, and trying to get each other to start laughing. Have you ever been there? Like not somebody teaching you to laugh, but have you ever been with a friend where you just start cracking up and you, you cannot stop laughing and how good that feels? Yeah. All right, I hope so. All right. And uh, so what they were saying is that there's something that God releases in joy, something that God releases in laughter. And the Bible says to stir up love. The Bible says to practice and put on righteousness, right? So the, their principle is it's the same thing with joy. It's not just when you feel joyful right? It's you better learn how to get joyful if you're not joyful. So I thought it was really interesting. I went away talking a little bit of trash about them, but since then, I've changed my mind. Y'all need to laugh more. But the joy of the Lord is our strength, so you get strength when you have joy, is what the scripture is basically trying to tell us. Um, I've noticed that even in our dark and difficult times, God will give us glimpses or moments of joy, right? In the hardest times, um, this is Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. It says, His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Right? It's this idea that, yeah, we get, we get hard times. We get difficult times. We have tragedy that, that springs up. A few weeks ago, we talked about a young man passing away and, and, and trying to support his family. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my uncle passed away, and we had his funeral this week. Uh, when the funeral was over, since the funeral on Thursday, um, another aunt and another aunt passed away in our family. So it's just like there's all this mourning and all this sadness. Uh, but one of the things that's been really interesting to me is all the joy that actually you're getting a little glimpse of. What I've seen in the family is people came to mourn and people came to cry and people came to remember. But as we told stories, people would start laughing. Even just for a minute or two, everybody would be cracking up, and then all of a sudden they'd be crying again, right? And as you think about it, even the family was getting together that hadn't seen each other in a long time, and we would hug each other, and we would smile, and we'd get, we'd get reminded of, of uh, our past experiences with one another. And it just made me think about scriptures like this where he says, you know, joy comes in the morning, right? That even in your darkest times, that, that earlier one was from Job, and his story is nothing but darkness, but he's talking about joy still, right? Last one, and then we'll, we'll pray. Isaiah 61.3, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Right? God says this, when you have joy, even in darkness, when you have laughing, uh, even when most people would say that you should be depressed, it says that God looks at you as a, a tree that's been planted by God himself. You're strong. You're rooted. There's something you have that other people don't have. And he says that he gets glory from that. That when the world looks at you and says, why are they still happy at all when their life is falling apart? Why do they, how are they able to laugh? How are they able to find joy in the midst of all of this craziness? It says that God gets glory. Earlier, again, Gary said that he asked himself when he gets an opportunity to bless somebody, God, how is it that you choose me? to have this opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else. And when people look at us and we have joy and we laugh and we make jokes and we are uh, uh, joy-filled, happy Christians, God is glorified. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you're the archetype of joy. You're the archetype of the joker, Lord God. You're the archetype of laughter, Lord, that we find all these things in you and from you, Lord, our sense of humor, Lord, our ability to take some of the most difficult situations and circumstances and still find hope, Lord. We sang earlier this morning, Lord, that you are an anchor for our soul, that our hope is in you, Lord. It doesn't mean that we will not struggle. It doesn't mean that we won't go through dark times, Lord. It just means that we have uh, a peace that surpasses understanding. It means that we can still experience love and experience joy and love others, Lord, even when we're suffering. And we get that from you. 
you were suffering. You were being abused. You were being betrayed, and you just poured out love. We want to be like you, Lord. We want to see you a little bit more clearly this morning, Lord, that we would be able to know you and know ourselves just a little bit better. Have your way, Lord. Give us joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. All right. A couple stories I want to share with you. Uh, number one, if you're taking notes, out of the mouths of donkeys. Out of the mouths of donkeys. You know, the Bible says that out of the mouths of babes, he's perfected praise, right? It's the little ones, the young ones, the, the children as they worship and as they pray. So um, I've got a picture for you. Out of the mouths of donkeys. Uh, this is going to be Numbers chapter 22. If you've got your... It's weird, huh? Like, they're actually kind of cute. If you have your Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 22. And again, we want to see the, the hilarity of our, our God. From verse 1, it says... The children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers to Balaam, to the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they're too many and too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, lodge here tonight. And I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me, and perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes, more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I'll certainly honor you greatly, and I'll do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come curse this people for me. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only, but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his, his stand in the way as an adversary against Balaam. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road, and the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have abused me. 
I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. The Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and I would have let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it pleases you, I will turn back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Arnon, the boundary of the territory. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, look, I've come to you. Now, I have, now have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirjath, Hazoth. The ba then Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and the princes who were with him. And it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Say, good story. Good story. So again, the hilarity of, of God with this donkey that talks and, and speaks to Balaam I love that uh, um, the donkey is the one that sees Jesus, right? The angel of the Lord standing there with his sword drawn, just like he was with Joshua when Joshua looked up and saw him. And the, the donkey has good enough sense to turn away and stop going in that direction that the Lord is trying to stop him from. Balaam hits him, keeps walking. The, the, uh, the donkey sees the Lord again. And he's like, look, we got to do something. He smashes Balaam's foot up against the side of a mountain, trying to get this guy to open his eyes and see what's happening. He hits him again. And then at some point when the donkey gets to a road where he says, there's nowhere else for me to go. Uh, I can't smash you again. I can't turn right or left. He just lays down. He's like, I ain't going no more. And Balaam's still hot. And just think about how funny this is. Not only is this conversation that the donkey starts talking to Balaam, but Balaam starts talking back to the donkey like it's a normal thing. And then uh, he says, I want to kill you. If there was a sword in my hand, I'd kill you, right? And then Jesus is like, I'm right here with the sword in my hand. I want to kill you too. You don't get it. There's lessons to be learned, though. It's not just a, a comedy story, right? Sometimes it's the least likely person that God is trying to use to help you. Yeah. You think they're trying to hurt you. You think they're trying to stop you from getting where you need to go. You think that they don't know nearly as much as you know, but they are actually the instrument of God to try to save your life, Amen. to try to help you, not hurt you. And sometimes when they do hurt you, it's in order that you would have a little bit of pain, but to save you from a whole lot of pain, yes. right? With Balaam, it'd be better to have a broken or scratched up foot than to, to end up dying by doing the opposite of the will of God, right? And God's willing to do these things. I think it's hilarious. He didn't have to put that in the Bible, but I'm so glad he did. <clears throat> I won't say what I want to say about donkeys in your life. But I want to look at uh, some important other lessons in this story. Balak, it says, was the king of the Moabites. And he sent for Balaam to ask him to curse the children of Israel. That's, what, that's the background for this story, right? The children of Israel have been delivered by God. Um, they're taking land. They're, it says that they're numerous. He sees them and he says, go call Balaam. We're going to ask him to just curse these people for us because we know him. If he, if he curses them, they'll be cursed. If he blesses people, they'll be blessed. Um, and he's scared. Balak is scared that these Israelites are going to come and take his land, take his kingdom, take his land, right? But Balaam is known as a wise man, as a powerful man, and as a diviner. Think about that for a second. The people in the community... The kings even of the surrounding nations say, we know this guy Balaam, he's wise, he's powerful, he's a diviner, he's able to talk to the gods. But they don't know 
is that he's a servant of the most high God. Think about that for a second. This is what I began to wonder. It says that they even came to him with the diviner's fee, right? If you're going to go see a powerful man, a wise man, a diviner that can talk to God, you, you got to have some money in your pocket to be able to, to pay him to do what you want him to do, right? So I began to wonder how many Christians are out there that have wisdom, that they, they live in this world with a certain sense of, of power and a certain sense of strength, that people even look to them for help and look to them for answers, but those same very people of the world don't know that your strength comes from the Lord, that your wisdom comes from God, right? that any power you have comes from God. That's what it was for, for Balaam. Balaam says, I know the Lord. God actually talks to me. When they showed up to his house the first time, he said, all right, you guys stay here, and I'm going to go and pray and, and talk to God. But does that make sense? They didn't think of him as a, a son of God, a child of God, a Christian, a believer. He was just one of the good guys. And I thought about how many people know that you are a Christian. How many people know that you do the right thing because you believe in Jesus? How many people know that when you show up to be a blessing in their life and to extend help to them, it's not just because you're a good person. It's because Jesus Christ has changed you and transformed you. They showed up to, with him, with a, uh, to him with a diviner's fee, which means they knew that what we want from him, if we just pay him, he'll give it to us. How many people know that the very most important thing to you is God? Not money. Amen. That you have a line that you won't cross. You have things that you won't do. Think about that for a second. Balaam, they don't know that about him. Yet he hears from God. <clears throat> is this story about the enemies of God or is this story about the children of God? When you read through this, when you heard it this morning, is the focus on the enemies of God or is the focus on the children of God? They come to find him. They ask him to curse the people. Verse 9 says, God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? I think the story is about God's son, Balaam. Not even the whole children of Israel. He's already doing something in them. This whole story is just specifically about this one son of God, this one man that belongs to God. God shows up and he doesn't say, are my people going to be okay? And, and, and let's talk about this king. He, he shows up to Balaam and says, who are these men with you? Why are they in your house? Who are they? Verse 12, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for the people are blessed. Is that clear? Let me ask you again this morning. Is God's direction clear? There's no ambiguity. There's no confusion here, right? How many of you feel like a lot of times in your life, it's not clear what God wants you to do? I wonder why that is. God said, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people. The people are blessed. And then here's where I think God is being funny again. Balaam answered, said to the servants of Balak, this is the second time they came back, though Balak uh, were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that shall you do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Think about Balaam. God tells him, don't go. They show back up. He says, I'm not going. I don't care if he gives me all the gold in his house, all the silver in his house. I'm not going. God told me not to go. I'm not going to do anymore. I'm not going to say any more than what God told me. And it's like major victory. Many of us have been there, right? Like when you know you take a stand for God and you did the right thing and like, yes. He goes to sleep and God comes and it's like, hey, if they come back tomorrow, go ahead and go with them. So he wakes up. He's like, wow, God, you're, you're still speaking to me. He saddles his donkey he goes with them, and then God's pissed. <laughs> is that confusing to anybody else? God, you told me not to go. I told him I'm not going to go. I went to sleep, and then you told me I can go. And then when I went, you got mad at me. 
I think a good example for us to think about this is like, think about your kids or think about when you were a kid, if this has happened to you. Have you ever like gone off on your kids and told them all the reasons why they shouldn't do something and why they can't do something? And then you try to like treat them really maturely and you say, but if you still want to go, but if you think that you should still do this, Nate, you go ahead and do it. And then he's like, okay, dad, I'm going to go. <laughs> My expectation was not that you would go. My expectation is that you would remember all the things that I've already told you and say, no, Lord, even if I could, I don't want to go anymore. God's so funny because I think that's what's happening in the story. He's like, Balaam, don't go. Stand firm. Don't, don't even think about cursing my people. My people are blessed. If they ask you, you tell them you ain't never going to be a part of something like that. <clears throat> but Balaam, if you think it's the right thing to do, you go ahead and do it. And then he does it and God's mad. And then Jesus, not only is God so mad, but then he sends the son, the angel of the Lord, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, to stand before him and say, now I'm your adversary. We've got some business to handle. So here's the last thing. Why, why is that important to you? If God tells you something and you're sure about it, right, and you know it's the right thing to do, when you start to hear voices or you start to hear like maybe it's okay now or maybe I should do this still or it'll be all right, I don't think that that's the right thing to do. What does God expect? He wants us to use our common sense. He wants us to remember what he's told us in the past and then always err on the side of doing the right thing or the holy thing, right? What's the worst that could happen if I go, Lord? Like, I'm going to break my foot and the donkey's going to start talking to me and I'm going to almost die. What's the worst thing that would happen if I just listen to what you said before and I don't go? I'm good. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Last thing and then we'll move on. Verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I'll turn back. I'll go back home. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men. But only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak again. So now Jesus is before him. He's already messed this up twice with, with God, the Father. And Jesus is standing before him, and he realizes that he sinned and that he shouldn't have gone, right? And he gets presented with the same exact direction. All right, I, I see that you get it now, Balaam. I see that you understand the mistakes and the error that you made. So... If you think it's still good to go, go ahead and go with him again. And Balaam's like, all right, I'm going. And then Jesus is just like, oh, God. This guy doesn't get it. I can't tell you how many times that God has had to do that with me, where, like, he keeps giving me the same opportunity to make the right decision, and I keep blowing it. And then I begin to say, Lord, why do you even give me a chance? Just, just make me do the right thing. Don't give me options. The same is true in the lives of my kids. The same is true in discipleship oftentimes where it's like you keep getting presented with the same opportunity to make the right decision, and we don't. I think that's part of the lesson here. I think God chose a funny way to show it to us. So if you feel like there's some area of your life right now where you keep, like, repeating, I think God has already told you what you should do, and uh, we should do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. So number one is out of the mouths of donkeys. Number two is psych. Psych. So I got a picture of, of Jesus here. Hopefully. No, 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 no. Other one. It should be Jesus, like, kind of peeking out the side with a white background. Everybody say, Psych. psych. All right. We'll read it and then it'll come up. This is John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? 
And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Were you able to find it? It's okay. So the picture is of, of Jesus saying, psych, because Jesus is looking out like this, peeking. He tells his brothers, no, I'm not going. I'm not going to the feast. I don't want to be there. I have other things to do. You guys go ahead and go. And then as soon as, he, as soon as they leave, it doesn't seem like something Jesus would do. But as soon as they walk out, Jesus starts creeping to the feast, hiding. Why would he do something like that? How many of you, I'm sorry if your kids are here, but how many of you have ever snuck out the house before? Right. You weren't supposed to go somewhere. You weren't supposed to go to a party. You weren't supposed to leave the house. You were grounded. Thank God for 2020. I've got Google cameras everywhere. <laughs> My kids are never going to be able to get away with anything. But that's something that is in our nature to do, right? Is to like go where you're not supposed to go, do something you're not supposed to do. Like you tell people, I'm not going, right? And then you go. And then to find out that Jesus <laughs> did the same thing here to me is just so funny. He sneaks in after he tells his brothers to go and they get going. He, he leaves and he goes up to the feast. But he doesn't just go up there. He goes and he starts listening to people's conversations. I want you to really do your best to picture Jesus walking into the feast and just kind of hanging out on the back wall and like listening to people talk about him. Hey, he's good. No, he's bad. He deceives the people. And he's, he's just kind of, he's not even supposed to be there. He told nobody that he was going or he told everybody he wasn't going. And he's listening to all these conversations. And then to me, I think the, the funniest part is he just can't take it anymore. He's been sneaking around. He wasn't supposed to be there. He's listening to all these conversations. He gets so angry that people completely miss the point of who he is and what he's come to do that he says, forget it. And he goes into the temple and starts preaching and starts teaching because the people are just so far off of who he is and what he came to do. I want to point out one other thing in this story from verse 6 and 7. Jesus is talking to his brothers, and it's just a normal family conversation. Jesus had actual brothers that Mary and Joseph had other kids after him, and they're in the house, and they're talking about going to this feast. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. What is Jesus saying to his brothers? He's saying... <clears throat> When I present myself, when I speak, when I uh, share who I am with the world, I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. It's going to lead me to the cross. I have work to do before that. So I can't go up there and just start talking to them. And it's, to me, it's funny because he says it so sarcastically to them. He says, but you guys, you guys go ahead and go. Nobody cares what you have to say because you're with the world. When you guys speak, the world is going to embrace you. When you guys go to the party, the, the world is going to party with you. The world's always ready for you because you're part of the world. So you guys go ahead and go. Again, we don't think of Jesus talking like this all the time. That's exactly what he's telling his brothers. He says, my time has not yet fully come. If I go up there and start telling the people what it is that I have to say, they're going to put me on a cross. If you go up there and tell them what you have to say, they're going to put you on a pedestal. You're just like them. They are of the world, but I'm not of the world. What about you and I as Christians today? When you speak, are you persecuted at all? Do you stand out? Do your words sound different? Do people recognize that you're not okay with everything that's going on in your kid's school, that you're not okay with everything that's going on at work, in the lunchroom? Do they recognize that you uh, feel differently about anything this morning? Um, Yesterday, Nate had a basketball tournament, and most people know he doesn't play on Sundays unless it's late in the afternoon. And the parents are on this thread. It's 6 o'clock in the morning because they play at 8 this morning. The parents are on this thread like, we need all the kids there because they've got to mesh together. They've got to get uh, 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 able to, to work really well with each other for these big tournaments to play at the highest level. And I got on there and said, don't expect to see Nate. <laughs> He's going to be at church this morning. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is who he needs to mesh with. 
This is the community that should be texting each other at 6 o'clock in the morning saying, are you going to be there? We need to be together. Are you ready to worship? Are you going to be a part of what God is doing? So it might seem like a small thing, but it's clear to them that church is more important than basketball to our family. Unlike Balaam, right? With Balaam, these people know that something's different about him, but they can't quite put their finger on it. Hey, let's just go give him some some money and he's going to curse these people for us. He's going to help us out, right? No, there's going to be no confusion on where we stand and why we stand there. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That should be part of our lives. Every month that we see each other, there should be at least one story about being persecuted as a Christian. Somebody that made your life harder because they know that you're a Christian. If nobody's making your life harder because nobody knows that you're a Christian, are we more like Jesus' brothers who he's like, just go in the world, nobody's going to give you a hard time? Or are we like him, we're like, I got to be careful where I go and what I say and when I say it because everything can be stripped from me because of who I am. And I have goals that I'm trying to accomplish. Pretty serious conversation, but I, I still think he says it in a funny way. You guys go ahead, nobody's going to hate on you. Last one, undercover boss, and this is that, that, that last picture. This is uh, Drew Brees. I don't know if any of you guys, I, I chose this picture because he looks like Jesus for some reason, or at least like what everybody tells us Jesus should look like. But undercover boss, I don't know, I've never watched the full show or anything like that, but it's the, it's the guy, it's the CEO or, the, or the, the woman, the CEO, the owners of the companies, and they dress up like like workers from the company, and they go see what their business really looks like and what their people really feel like. So apparently they did one with Drew Brees, quarterback for the, for the Saints. And uh, we get Jesus here as the undercover boss. In Luke chapter 24, verse 12, this is right after the, uh, the resurrection, Luke 24, 12. Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was that while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you're sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he broke bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight." Gotcha. That's what I hear Jesus saying at the end of the story. Gotcha. So Jesus is wearing a little bit of an undercover boss kind of mask here. Even at the resurrection, if you read back through your scriptures, at the resurrection, the women thought that he was a gardener. So I picture him there making himself look different. And they think he's a gardener. And they say, Where, where'd you put him? The disciples didn't know him until he showed him the, the holes in his hand and his feet. 
He called them over to have breakfast with them another time after his resurrection, and it said that they thought it was him, but everybody was scared to ask him because they can't tell from the way that he actually looks. Even in the upper room, he has to say, look at the holes in my hands. Look at the hole in my side, the holes in my feet, for them to be able to recognize him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we get him with Peter, James, and John, and they go up and they see Jesus, but all of a sudden his clothes are shining and his face is shining. His glory, a little bit more of his glory, is able to be seen. Uh, that one to me is, is also very important because it, it shows that even when before the resurrection, like, he was hiding. Does that make sense? He wasn't able, they weren't able, we weren't able to see him in his full glory. So he's always wearing a little bit of a mask. He's, he's God that looks like a man. Right? And then they get to go up on this Mount of Transfiguration and see a little bit more of that, see a little bit more of that glory. Right? This also reminds me of all the times, how many times do we read in the scriptures where Jesus would go, just like, uh, just like when he goes up to this feast at the temple, and the scriptures tell us that he would preach, he would teach, and then they do want to do what? They want to kill him. And then what does it say? That he disappeared in the crowd. How do you guys think that happened? Do you think they all just looked alike? I'm speculating, but you know what I think? I think he made himself look like other people. Could you imagine like you were there with, with your, your friends or your family and like you look to the side and you think it's one of your friends, but it's really Jesus like sneaking out? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he's, he went that way. He went that way. He's so good. The Bible says to entertain strangers because by doing so, some have entertained angels, right? I think we get that from him too. You kind of know he's there. You know it's him, but, but you don't know. So two things I want to point out, and we're going to close from this story. It says that, so it was, while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, because if you rose from the dead, after accomplishing everything that Jesus did and everything he had to accomplish, of all the things that you would choose to do, would you choose to catch up with two random guys, we only know one of them's named Cleopas, to go and talk to them? What's so significant about them? What's so significant about you? What's so significant about me? Jesus thinks you're significant. Jesus thinks it's important. Puts it into his word. Not only did he do it, but he puts it into his word to tell us that he goes find these random two gentlemen that are walking in the wrong direction to have this conversation with them. And it says that they reasoned, they were conversing, they were reasoning about all the things that had happened, and he came and he walked with them. So the first thing I want to tell you is that as we walk with one another and we talk about the things of God, Jesus will show up. Amen. Right? If you want to know how to feel the presence of God, hear the voice of God, um, feel the touch of God, this is a great example, and this has been an example from my experience, that you need to be with people and you need to be talking about God. Right now, you're with people, but I'm talking about God. And when you come to church, hopefully you feel the presence of God in worship. You hear God speaking through his word as it's presented to you. But it's not the same thing as Jesus showing up in your house with you and your spouse, you and your kids, you and your friends, you and a bunch of other men, you and a bunch of other women talking about God and then him showing up in the midst saying, here I am and I want to be part of this conversation. I've come to realize that so many Christians don't know anything about that experience. They don't know anything about God showing up into a conversation and you be tangibly able to feel him there talking with you guys as you talk about him. To me, it's the best. I get to have certain conversations like that. I'll be on the phone with somebody and we'll be talking about church or talking about God or talking about a particular portion of scripture. And you can feel the shift between when it's just us talking about it and now all of a sudden God is here and he's doing something. Yes. Yes. Amen. Man, I want that for everybody but there's some people that don't value or don't see it um, as something, a gift that God has given us. So talk about God. He'll show up with people. Verse 17, he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and you're sad? Jesus, you already know <laughs> what we're talking about. You floated over here. You didn't even like catch up to us. You just showed up on the side of the road. You came on purpose. You know exactly what we're talking about. And then Jesus said, hey, what are you guys talking about? 
<laughs> you look so sad. You're just talking. And you're, what, what's going on? Tell me what happened. And then you can see his face, can't you? And they're like, are you the only one that wasn't here in Jerusalem? It's the biggest thing that's going on. He's like, really? Really? Okay. I didn't know that. And then what does he do? The Bible says that he begins to open the scriptures to them. He doesn't say, let me, let me, let me make you feel better about what you're going through. He doesn't say, um, oh, you, you just didn't see it right, and, and let me tell you what's really going on. The Bible says that beginning at Moses, our Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, and through all the prophets, it says that he starts in the Old Testament and he starts opening the scriptures about himself. He uses the word to show them who he is. Verse 29, they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them, and it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were open. So here's the progression. Get with some people and start talking about Jesus, and he'll show up and be part of what you guys are doing. Then get into the scriptures and let Jesus present himself to you. Does that make sense? The Bible says that the word of God is alive and powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword. That doesn't mean that anybody who picks this thing up will be changed or transformed. What it means is if you have the spirit of God alive inside of you and you pick this up and you begin to read it, the spirit of God will reveal Jesus to you. He will start talking to you about who he is, what he's done, who you are, what he has for you, everything. And then after that, what Jesus tells us is then he'll break bread with you and you'll have actual communion with him. That's the progression here. They talked about him, he showed up, then he talked to them through his word, and then they sat down and he broke bread for them and had communion, and then it says their eyes were open, and then he says, gotcha, and he was gone. (laughs) What a great story. My prayer is that uh, you find yourself reading through the scriptures and laughing. My prayer is that you find yourself having moments like this where you're you're going through something in your life and you're like, oh, I'm the donkey. Or, oh, I'm Balaam. You find yourself expecting Jesus to do the unexpected. Being somewhere that you didn't think he'd be. Saying something that you didn't think that he'd say. And then finally, um, experiencing him in this way like these men on the road to Emmaus did showing up for you and your family, showing up for you and your friends, showing up for you and your spouse, and revealing himself more and more, and then having communion with you. We're going to have communion in a minute here. And is it an opportunity? Is it an opportunity to do what we do every week? Or is it an opportunity that that maybe he'd just show up this morning? I think it was last week. We're going to do it again this week in a minute when we receive communion. But I'm going to ask you to grab a hold of somebody and talk to them before you have communion. Let's just see what Jesus might do. It might look like you're talking to somebody you came with, and it could be Jesus. (laughs) Definitely speaking through him. Why don't we stand? And we're going to pray for just a few things. I definitely think that, uh, again, Jesus is funny. God is funny. How he chooses to do things when you could choose any other way to accomplish things. He doesn't always choose the easiest way. He doesn't always choose the, the shortest path. Sometimes there's a lot of pain involved in getting us where we've got to go. Even sarcasm and talking to us about where we are and where we should be. But he does that with a purpose. His primary purpose is our salvation. He says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He wants us to be aware of our sinfulness. He wants us to be aware um, of our unrighteousness. He says that the best we have to offer is like filthy rags. He'll put that out there for us, but then he says, but I can save you, I can help you, I can change you, I can transform you, 
I can do the impossible. I can do a miracle. I can rise from the dead. I can give you new life. All these things. And he uses all these different tools that he has. Love and compassion. Friendship. Jokes. He'll use anything to lead us unto himself. So if you're here, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're not saved but you want to be, everything that we do here in this place is for two purposes. One, it's to to welcome those that don't know Jesus into a relationship with him where they can be forgiven of their sins. And the second thing that we do here in this place is we try to help people grow in depth in that relationship with him if they already have it. So if you're not saved, we don't want you to leave without having that opportunity to give your life to Jesus. He is alive. He is well. He will reveal himself. He might seem clouded. He might seem um, uh, hard to really recognize in your life right now, but it won't always be that way. At some point, he will reveal himself clearly to you. But you've got to take that step of faith first. So if that's you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you raise your hand? We just want to pray with you, pray for you. Amen. Hallelujah, Lord. Amen. So what the altars are going to be open for are for two groups of of prayer and then also for communion. But the first group of prayer are for any that would say you just want to enjoy Jesus and you want to enjoy church and you want to enjoy Christianity more. Like maybe you've lost that. (laughs) Like I like doing this. I'm happy. He puts a smile on my face. I've got the same drama I had before, but now I don't see it the same way and I don't let it control me the same way. If, if you've begun to, lo- to lose that, or maybe you've never had that, your salvation, your Christianity should be marked by joy, marked by laughter. And this is something that God can give you and will give you. I'm going to open the altars for you in just a moment here. And then the other group is that anybody who's here that's actually in the process of mourning, You're in the process of like, you're just really dealing with something. You feel overwhelmed at times. You feel sad more often than not. You feel like maybe you're even in a a season of depression. And we want to pray for you. Like the scripture said that he'll give you joy for your mourning. It doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that you're not feeling how you feel and experiencing what you're experiencing. But this morning you would say that you would like God to give you joy for your mourning. You'd like him to give you beauty for your ashes and some oil of gladness. We want to pray with you and pray for you. We believe that he can and we believe that he will. So as I pray, the altars are going to be open. You can come for prayer. Our prayer team will will pray with you, pray over you. And then again, as you receive your communion, don't do it alone. Spend a moment talking about maybe just share with each other something Jesus has done for you or a way that you've seen him. Or maybe this morning you would say, I want to tell you a story about when the Lord made me laugh. And then take your communion together in remembrance of him. Amen. The altars are open. Lord, we thank you for another day in your house, another day in your presence, another time to worship you, another time to be amongst friends and amongst family, Lord God. We ask that you would meet us here, here at this altar, Lord, here in this building. Give us our joy back. Give us our thanksgiving back. Let our smile be what defines us, Lord. Give us laughter and excitement anticipation of good things happening in our lives, Lord God. As we come, Lord, if there's something that we're dealing with, Lord, if we're mourning, maybe we've lost friends or we've lost family members, we've lost friendships, Lord God. Whatever it is, would you give us joy for our mourning? Would you change it and transform it? Your word says that you can. Your word says that you have in the past, Lord. We stand on your word. We believe that you will again in the future. Could today be my day? Could today be my day, Lord? Turn our mourning into dancing, Lord, here in this place, God. As we receive our communion, Lord, let us remember what you've done. Let us remember who you are, Lord. Put a smile on our face again, Lord. Let us share those stories, Lord, the same way those men from Emmaus, Lord, were talking about you and you showed up. As we talk about you this morning, we ask that you would show up. Don't let it be another day of just uh, some bread and some juice, Lord. Let it be a time of actually communing with you and opening our eyes, Lord. Have your way, Jesus. Have your way, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I was nowhere you came to my rescue. From the grave I've been raised. When I needed a savior to save me, Jesus, you made a way. I 
you for listening. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.